Welcome to the Season 4 finale of Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Well, we made it. The 20th and final episode for this, the fourth season of Monsters Among Us. As longtime listeners know, I do my best to do something special to send each and every season out with a bang. And well, tonight is no exception. This evening we're going to hear from nearly a dozen listeners that submitted stories about their hometowns, counties, regions, and states. In addition, I have a special interview lined up with an expert in all things legend. But before we launch into that, I recently, as in I woke up there this morning, went on a camping trip to one of Southern California's strangest locations, the Salton Sea. It's called the Salton Sea. It's the largest body of water in California, and it's not even supposed to be there. At the turn of the last century, an engineering screw-up of epic proportions diverted the Colorado River into one of the lowest, hottest land basins in the United States. It took two years to stem the tide, and when the flooding finally stopped, 350 square miles of desert lay underwater. Everyone assumed the giant inland sea they had created by accident would just dry up, but when it didn't, real estate developers tried to turn an ecological disaster into an opportunity. Here is truly a miracle in the desert, a whole new outlet for the crowded millions in big cities, a Palm Springs with water. Here is where you can find the good life in the sun. Today, the Salton Riviera, beside the blue Salton Sea, is the place for you to take charge of your future. You can come as you are, no reservations required. Enjoy life at the Riviera. For a while, it really did seem like a miracle. Tourists flocked to a place that had once been unforgiving desert. People bought homes, built schools, restaurants, yacht clubs. But then the sea turned on them. Over the years, its water, fed only by agricultural runoff, became saltier than the ocean. Botulism poisoning killed millions of fish, and massive die-offs during the height of 120-degree summers made the air almost unbreathable. The sea began to flood unpredictably. Tourists fled. Boom towns turned into ghost towns. Today, what remains is a landscape out of science fiction. Gridded streets, every one of them named, still waiting for neighborhoods that never arrived. Beaches made not of shell or sand, but of the pulverized skeletons of uncountable millions of fish. Houses half-tumbled into toxic-looking pits, 
That clip was taken from YouTube user Rance Riggs. Sure, the Salton Sea story is full of mistakes, tragedy, and decaying beauty, but it's also home to another legend, a centuries-old nautical mystery that I attempted to solve on my most recent trip. Apparently, the arid, windswept dunes of the Mojave hide a secret from centuries ago, a treasure of untold wealth. A great bird with white wings came floating down from Mexico way. It stopped. Then soon the men went away, walking south into Mexico. The water went away, and the bird was lying in the sand. Its white wings fell down, leaving a tall bare tree sticking up. After a while, the wind blew and blew, and the bird was covered with sand. It's said that one of the biggest legends of the Southwest is to have taken place in the Colorado Desert. For decades, rumors have circulated that a Spanish pearling vessel sailed up a channel from the Gulf of California and into an unknown inland sea. Legend has it, after exploring to the north of the reported sea, they found no opening into the Pacific Ocean and turned around. As they headed south, they found their only channel to get home had dried up and closed. Abandoning their ship, they walked back into Mexico, and it was later reported the captain showed up in Acapulco without his ship. According to various explorers and reports, that sea is said to be today's Salton Sea. For over 140 years, California pioneers, prospectors, and even farmers have reported seeing this legendary ship. While various accounts have surfaced regarding witnessing the abandoned ship, no physical evidence has ever been brought back. That video was courtesy of The Desert Empire One. So naturally, I did what I do, and I did a little digging. And this time, in the literal sense of the word. I spent the last few days probing around the foothills surrounding the Salton Sea in search of this very mystery. Keep your eyes peeled on Facebook this week for a brief video documenting my adventure. Given that this mystery is only a few hours from my home, I might try my luck again when I have more time to explore the rocky crags and eroded hillsides of this barren, desert wasteland. But, given that the vessel has eluded discovery thus far, it's entirely possible that its final resting place lies beneath the salty waves of the Salton Sea. I have a great show lined up for you guys this evening, so what do you say we get started? Before we go any further, I'd like to welcome my guest for part of this journey, a guest that is no stranger to hometown legends. Robert C. Robinson is an author, adventurer, and above all else, legend tripper. Welcome, Robert, to the show. Hey, thanks, Derek. So let me let me ask you a real quick obvious question. Tell me, what is legend tripping? How would you define that? I define legend tripping as uh, to go on a, a trip, as you were, um, a, a, a journey to go explore some uh, legends, uh, preferably in your area. 
they could be anything from, you know, in the cryptozoology field, i.e. Bigfoot, the Mothman. Uh, you got uh, the paranormal, you know, uh, uh, conducting a paranormal investigation, i.e. Uh, ghost hunt. Uh, you got UFOs, which I like to go look for, uh, you know, UFO landing sites. Treasure, which uh, almost every state in the, uh, you know, United States has a, some legend of uh, buried treasure. And, you know, you got uh, areas that are just mysterious places that have, you know, really weird things happen, like gravity hills and uh, ghost lights. So basically, uh, the hometown legend segment of this show is is legend tripping, in a sense. Yes. Uh, like I said, uh, I always encourage people to go explore their area, and you'd be surprised how many legends they actually have in their area that they could just get out and go look at. Uh, in fact, you know, Bigfoot sightings, there's practically uh, Bigfoot sightings all over the United States. I think, I think Hawaii is the only state that doesn't have any Bigfoot sightings. I think I've heard that as well, and I've seen the episode of... Uh... Uh, uh, finding Bigfoot that took place in Rhode Island, which I thought was a bit comical, but uh, hey, you never know. You know yes. People see things, so. How did you get started in legend tripping? Was it something that happened when you were a kid or, you know, an adult fascination? What happened there? Uh, well, I, the story I always tell people on how I got into legend tripping or just looking for, you know, the unexplained is two movies, uh, The Exorcist and The Legend of Boggy Creek. Uh, quick story, me and my friend, we snuck in to go see it. You know, we were 12 years old. Uh, we saw it, scared the crap out of me. Uh, we were walking out of the theater. I heard some people in front of us talking, and they made a comment that, you know, it was a true story, you know, that happened to a 12-year-old little boy. I looked at my friend Tommy. I said, did you hear that? We're 12 years old. And he said, no, I'm 12 and a half. I'm too old. You, on the other hand, you're going to get possessed. <laughs> you know, got home, you know, didn't sleep at all that night. You was know, waiting for my bed to move. My mom ended up having to bring a priest in to talk to me and convince me that I wasn't going to get possessed. And, uh, you know, uh, then I started researching about the whole story that happened in, uh, you know, in Georgetown about the little boy. And I actually got a little fascinated with it and found out it wasn't, you know, just like the movie was. I mean, but, you know, the church did authorize an exorcism. Uh, and then, of course, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is, you know, you talk to any uh, Bigfoot hunter and they all know this movie. We went to go see it at drive-in when we were, you know, living in Mississippi. Didn't know anything about the movie. It was a double-featured uh, drive-in. Saw the poster. You know, went and saw the, uh, watched the movie. In fact, I watched the movie sitting behind, you know, in the back seat with my eyes just, you know, just sitting over the uh, seat watching this thing. Just, you know, and, you know, it terrified that, that you know, thinking, you know, there's, there really is a boogeyman. Um, then my uncle was telling me stories. My mom told me stories about the Loch Ness monster. She's from Edinburgh, Scotland. And then I, you know, I started finding books on the subject, and and I, and I stopped being scared, and I just got fascinated with it. And I've been, you know, ever since. Uh, you know, the TV show In Search of, you know, further fueled my interest in it. We visited a museum uh, in Gatlinburg, Miss, uh, Tennessee, that's no longer there, called World of the Unexplained. Again, you know, just got me going. And as far as, you know, using the term legend tripper, what happened was I was pretty much into the cryptozoology scene, going out looking for Bigfoot and, you know, any other legends that are, you know, in the cryptozoo field, like the Mothman and uh, Jersey Devil. But my wife was into the paranormal. So I would go with her on ghost hunts and she would come with me on Bigfoot hunts. She didn't want to be called a Bigfoot hunter. I didn't want to be called a ghost hunter. But we heard the term legend tripping and we started looking into it and we said, you know what, that kind of fits our bill. Because we go look for all kinds of legends. I mean, if I hear about something, you know, ghost trains or gravity hills or ghost lights uh, and UFO stuff, not, you know, 
not necessarily Bigfoot or paranormal. I'd like to go, you know, we go look into that stuff. So from that point on, we just started calling ourselves legend trippers. So how long have you been, been practicing legend tripping? Um, and, and aside from that, have you seen anything? Well, I can officially say I started doing it actively when I got out of the military in 2003. Okay. And I started, you know, I retired here in Florida, and then I started going on Bigfoot hunts. And then my wife uh, hooked up with some ghost hunters and stuff. I mean, I've had an interest in it, like I said, since I was a kid. And I think my first legend trip would be in high school when we heard about Momo, the Bigfoot that was seen in Missouri. Uh-huh. And I talked to friends into going down to go look, look, you know, because I lived in Kansas, right on the uh, Kansas-Missouri border. But we didn't really prepare or really think this whole thing out. We got down, you know, end up getting down there. Didn't really take any supplies with us. Didn't really have any money to go stay in a hotel. And, of course, when I end up talking to people around it, didn't really get a whole lot of uh, cooperation from people down in the town. So, you know, my friends were kind of a little upset at me, you know, dragging them all the way down to this town and nothing and uh, we had did somebody did show us where it happened, where this, uh, where the thing was seen by this uh, uh, river. But uh, you know, I did realize then, you know, you can't, you can't, legend tripping can't be just a, a whim. You're going to have to, you know, make some preparations and get some stuff, you know, pack some stuff and and prepare when you go do this stuff. But of course, then right after that, I went in the military, and of course, the army kind of takes all your time up. It doesn't really give you time to go. But I still. You know, I watched shows. I, I kept my reading up on the subject. So, you know, when I got out in 2003, I told myself and, you know, my wife, I said, I'm going to get, I am definitely going to start getting into this stuff. You mentioned prepared, you know, a list of items and stuff. And that's something you touch on heavily in the book um, for each. You kind of break it down into uh, aquatic cryptids like Bigfoot, ghosts, UFOs, and even treasure, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in each one, you seem to offer a packing list or a, you know a list of do's and don'ts. Um, is that come from your military background, or is that just something that's common sense? Well, I mean, quick answer: it should be common sense. <laughs> but yes, it definitely comes from my military background because uh, you know whenever I got we got deployed, you know if you didn't pack it and you got sent, you were out. You were out of luck. You know yeah. you didn't have it. So and I when I've go, I. When I got out, I teamed up with uh, the BRFO, Matt Moneymaker, and I went out on some of his uh, his trips. And I, you know, and I noticed a lot of people weren't bringing the stuff they needed to bring out there. You know, some people decided that they were gonna, you know, well, I've seen the survival show. I'm gonna do what they do in these survival shows. And next thing you know, it they're freezing their butts off, and you got to go out and go get them a sleeping bag and you know a tent. <laughs> so I always try to stress in that, you know, don't try to go do the survival thing. You know, you know. I myself, and I even say it in my book, I'm not a survival expert. I've never been in a survival situation. And I attribute that to the fact that I always plan everything out. And the fact that I usually take my family out with me. Not so much now. They've all kind of grown up and they've left the nest, so to speak. But I always like to make sure I had everything when I get out there. Nothing worse than having to stop what you're doing and then go back and get something. Yeah. You know, a lot of these investigations, I assume, put you in places that help isn't right around the corner. You know, if you're looking for Bigfoot and you find yourself somewhere in the Cascades and there's trouble, you better be prepared. So, you know, uh, I I like that part of the book where you kind of preached that uh, you should be prepared for anything because ultimately it may be a, a, a stumble or a fall breaks a leg or a foot or arm or something like that and without that list you're in trouble so I, I like that aspect of the book well like I said I always just I like to be prepared I mean I remember one incident we were out with uh, and I always call these 
kids, uh, these guys were with, I call them, you know, surfer dudes, because, I mean, they had that hell dude attitude. And I was watching them, and they, and they grabbed all these logs, and they were, you know, and they took out a big lighter, and I, you know, I was watching them and watching them, and I said, what are you guys doing? He said, dude, we're starting a fire, man. And I said, oh, okay. And I watched them, and like, man, this, we can't get a fire. And I said, you know, I can, I can show you guys how to do this. They go, yeah, dude, could you show us? You know, so... <laughs> you know, I said, move the logs. I said, let's get some twigs and all this stuff and get some little, you know, and then we'll build a fire up and then you can use the logs. And they were sitting there watching, taking the whole, real good attitude about them. You know, they weren't, you know, being, you know, being rude or anything about it. Sure. And sure. next thing I know, we fire, and just one of them looks at me and said, dude, you're like a fire god, man. You know, <laughs> and I just, you know, I just, I always laugh when I hear, you know, remember him saying that to me. It always looks easy on TV, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And I've always told people, if you're ever going to go try to, you know, try to take some two sticks and rub them together, I'd get out and try it before you do that. Hey, I always like to take matches and a big lighter with me before, you know. So what do you say, Robert? You want to get into our first call of the evening here? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. Well, the first one was submitted by Addie, who you may know as the moderator of the Facebook fan page. Uh, this is Addie's story from Wyoming. Hey Derek, this is Addie from Wyoming, as in Addie from the Monsters Among Us Facebook page. I wanted to share with you about one of my hometown's legends. Now, as many people know, Wyoming is a very landlocked state. However, I live along the North Platte River, and the North Platte River is known for a ghostly barge that shows up in the springtime. It materializes out of fog, and if you are unlucky enough to view it, you will see a icy crew standing around a body. When the crew parts, you will see the body on the floor of the boat, and it will be a loved one. And that is supposed to predict the death of the loved one. Now, I have never witnessed this terrifying boat. However, the first sighting was in 1862 by an unlucky man who saw it and when the crew parted, it happened to be his girlfriend on the boat. I also have researched that there's been sightings as far as 110 miles away from from where I live. Anyways, I just wanted to share a hometown legend. Keep up the great work, and thank you so much for this amazing podcast. Thank you, Addie, for that submission. So, Robert, have you ever heard of this story? I've heard similar stories to it. I, I mean, the story does remind me of the legend of the Banshee, uh, where, you know, in, in Irish uh, folklore, the Banshee shows up, and that means somebody in your family is getting ready to, you know, pass away. In fact, in that movie, the Darby O'Gill and the Little People, uh, the Walt Disney movie, the Banshee showed up, and next thing you know, Darby O'Gill's uh, his daughter. So, I mean, there's plenty of stories about that in reference to, uh, you know, an omen of death coming. I mean, even, uh, you know, in the cryptozoology field, the, the Mothman, mm-hmm. supposedly the story goes that it was seen. And next thing you know, it the uh, I think it was a silver bridge collapsed and a, a, a number of people died. And then now they have said that uh, the uh, Mothman is a premonition or an omen for a disaster or somebody dying. And that seems to be what people in Chicago are waiting for right now. Um, as you probably know, there's been a flap of going on maybe two years now of Mothman sightings in the southern Chicago area, and people are kind of leery about what may happen if he is truly a precursor to all this stuff. 
Yeah, I saw those stories. Of being, in fact, there's been quite uh, a bit of, uh, like you said, a bit of uh, flap going on about it. First, I thought maybe it's just a, you know, an isolated incident, but it seems to be uh, quite a bit of sightings and enough to where people are now starting to take notice of this Mothman sightings in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about Addie's story here is that I actually spent an entire summer in Casper, Wyoming, where this story takes place. And uh, I, I lived with my aunt and uncle on their ranch, just kind of helping out for a summer when I was in high school. And that was one of the first stories I heard when I got there was the legend of this ghost ship. So I'm actually familiar with this story, and obviously I had never seen it, and I don't know anyone that ever has. And in the little bit of research I did, it seemed the last time it was seen was, I believe, 1902. Um, so it may not be the most frequent, uh, sorry, 1903, I just checked my notes here. It may not be the most frequent, you know, urban legend or, or legendary specter, I guess, but it's definitely really interesting. And, and like you said, it does it does kind of fall in line with the Banshee or Mothman or other precursors of doom or death. Oh, well, believe it or not, uh, there is supposedly a ghost ship seen on Loch Ness as well. Oh, really? Yeah. When I was a kid, we visited, I mean, like I told you, my mom's from Edinburgh, Scotland, and we, one time on one of our little uh, jaunts, we went up to Loch Ness. We didn't get to stay up there all day, unfortunately, but I do remember hearing a story that I heard some people talking about. The guy was saying that, yeah, we also have a, 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 a ghost ship that's seen, and I guess it's seen on a certain time frame, and I don't remember the time frame when it was seen, but it's seen at night. It kind of glows, and then it's seen going across the loch. That's really interesting. Do, is there a time period yeah. of where the uh, where the ship might have came from? I believe it's in the uh, you know the seventeen hundred ship about about the seventeen hundred if I'm not mistaken. Again, okay. I have to look that one up. I just assume that lake has been used for a long time. I, I mean, the the first report of the monster come back from the eleven hundreds. I want to say something like that. It was uh, a clergyman, oh, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, the sightings go way back for this uh, this cryptid. Very interesting. Okay, well, what do you say we launch into our next one here? We're just going to do rapid fire. The next call comes to us from John in Rhode Island. Hey, Mr. Derek Hayes, how are you? This is John calling from very cold Rhode Island. Um, This is uh, in reference to your local Legends uh, upcoming finale. Uh, So uh, there's a couple things. Uh, about Rhode Island that are interesting and uh, that I wanted to share with you. Uh, One of them, Rhode Island is second only to Eastern Europe in vampire folklore. I'm not sure if anyone knew that, but it's true. Um, The most famous being Mercy Brown, um, Sarah Tillinghast, Nellie Vaughan. These are some uh, that you can look up, uh, some of the more popular ones. Um, And to this day, uh, people claim to see Mercy walking Chestnut Hill Baptist Church Cemetery on Route 102 in Rhode Island. Uh, In fact, I went there to visit recently, and um, there's a little, uh, I don't know what you call them, uh, an eco box or a geo box where you can sign your name, where you're from, and uh, your thoughts about Mercy. But uh, the local legend is uh, the gates of hell. So when I was in high school, uh, of course, uh, this is back in 1998 when I was a senior. Uh, I actually knew about it before then. But uh, down this road, um, I live in West Greenwich, which is the more rural area of Rhode Island, at about the uh, Connecticut border. 
there was these uh, the, these gates, enormous wrought iron gates, just blocking uh, a path that a car could drive down. And um, the, 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 the deal was that you would go down to these gates, which were called the gates of hell, and you would, and this is kind of sound like I'm sure a million other local legends, but you flash your lights three times. And on the third flash, uh, a car from the inside of the gate will turn on its lights. Now, those who said to have been close enough to the car uh, reported to be a black Camaro. Not sure of the year on that one. But I'm just going to go ahead and assume it's the SS version. But uh, anyway, the deal is you got to back out of there and you got to outrun this Camaro to a bridge. There is a bridge further down Plain Meeting House Road. It's about two miles, a mile and a half, somewhere in that area. And uh, Plain Meeting House Road is a very uh, twisting and turning road. So the deal is this car lights up. Somehow it goes through the gate. Phantom car. Why not? Uh, and you got to beat it to the, uh, to the bridge. <laughs> And uh, when you do, the lights disappear and the car disappears. Um, and I've heard stories of people doing it and saying that it appeared and it followed them. And I've never heard of any stories of anyone not making it. Maybe there's a reason for that. <laughs> anyway, take care of yourself. Love your podcast. I'll be calling back with another story uh, that you're going to enjoy. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, John, for that submission. Uh, you know, it's funny, ever since I've been, you know, researching the paranormal, Mercy Brown's story has been the top of the list for me, because I, I, I just kind of have a thing for vampires. I, not necessarily that I believe in them, but I just think the story is fascinating. And ultimately, what had happened here is that uh, Mercy Brown was part of a large family, and from what I remember, the uh, nearly every child had died in this family of tuberculosis or influenza. I believe it was tuberculosis. She died early on, and as people in the family continued to die, people in the town started to question whether or not Mercy Brown may have been a vampire and had come back to take her siblings with her. So they finally exhumed her body and found her, despite the fact that she'd been dead nearly a year or possibly over a year, she was in relatively great shape. Um, her skin was in great shape. She had blood on her mouth, like um, moist blood. So they assumed she was a vampire at that point. They um, burned her body, removed her heart, and burned it, and then fed the ashes to her only living brother who died a couple months later. Um, so that's where the the legend of Mercy Brown came from. And they, you know, everyone in that area assumed from that point on that Mercy was, in fact, a vampire. So I'm wondering, Robert, have you ever heard of any other vampire-related stories, uh, you know, throughout the country that may coincide with this one, you know, either contemporary or, you know, older? Well, when he made that comment, I quickly looked it up, and, you know, he's correct that, uh, you know, Rhode Island is the capital of vampire sighting or incidents in the United States. But, uh, you know, there hasn't really been... You know, there's more. There seems to be a you know, not to veer off the subject too much. There seems to be a, a rise in what they call a, you know, uh, werewolf sightings that have suddenly taken popularity in there, so much there. But I, I, 
I do remember, you know, when the Anne Rice books were out, and there seemed to be a lot of uh, interest in vampires. But uh, you know, as, as far as my experience goes with my, you know, looking into legends and stuff, I haven't come across any uh, vampire legend. But I tell you, I, I really would, would, I would be something neat to get into and, and look into. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it just dawned on me a story that uh, throughout the show, I, I reach back on a few stories that happened to me, you know, in my life or people that I know. And as a kid, I was probably 10 years old, and I remember my parents having a conversation about, uh, we grew up near West Virginia, we were about an hour from the border uh, in Ohio, and um, I remember a story about a woman that was found dead in a hotel room, or motel room, um, drained of blood with two puncture marks in her neck. My mother told this story to my father, I wasn't supposed to be listening, it was their conversation, but I heard it, and it fascinated and terrified me at the same time. And looking back, this was probably right around the time that the Anne Rice books came out. So I, I bet it was some sort of urban legend kind of thing that was going around. I've since looked countless times on Google or uh, local uh, West Virginia news sites trying to find this story, and I can't seem to find it anywhere. So I doubt that it ever took place. But the fact that the story existed was hmm. uh, fascinating to me. I'll have to look that one up. It was something right out of a movie, I could tell you that much. <laughs> It does sound kind of neat. I mean, like I said, I'm not to look that one up because I'm not too far from you know in Florida. That's not that far uh, a trip. And yeah. uh, you know, when we do make trips up to my wife's family up in Pennsylvania, we try to look for things on the way up there. And we've been known to be, you know I've been known to take some detours going up there just to go check out some legends in the air and on, on the way up there. Have you looked into the Flatwoods Monster uh, there in Flatwoods, West Virginia? Um, no. But again, that that is definitely on my uh, that is on my list. I haven't really got to look into too much of uh, the UFO. I mean, we have one area down here where there's been a UFO-related incident. But you know, I mean, they got the Flatwoods Monster. They have that incident incident that happened over in Kentucky. Um, Hopkinsville. Oh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, that I've you know always wanted. To, I've always wanted to go check out Hopkinsville over that. I mean, I don't know. A little bit of a little trivia here. Um, Steven Spielberg. Back in the day, after he did uh, Close Encounters, was going to do a movie on that incident and do some rewrites and all that. And you know, some studios not picking up on it, he revamped it, and lo and behold, it became that movie E.T. But initially, he wanted to do the Hopkins incident. That would have been a great. I mean, I love E.T. That was the first movie I saw in the theaters. But you know, the Hopkinsville story would be awesome to see on film, especially done by Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe one of these days they'll 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 do it. I. So, because I tell you, that to me is one of the, you know, uh, one of the neatest UFO legends out there. I completely agree. And maybe I'll play a little video at the end of this episode to kind of touch on Hopkinsville just because I, you know, enjoy the story so much. Before we get started into our last call, though, Robert, I want to ask you a quick question. I was going through your book and I found a creature that I'd never heard of, which... Um, I'm, I'm not bragging here, but I was impressed that I hadn't heard of it, especially since it was a, a North American creature. The Galrau, is that how you pronounce that, out of Arkansas? Oh, the Goro? Oh, Goro. yeah, that's, uh, that is what, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed talking about that one. Because, uh, you know, it is a little, uh, it's not really known, but it was actually featured, you know, in a movie. But the sad part is they never mentioned it in the movie. They just kind of left it to your imagination what was in in the hole or the cave 
but doing research, I mean, it, you know, the people down there, you know, definitely know about the story. I also found out that the cave itself is on private property. So I told the wife one of these days, we're just going to have to jump in the car and go on up there. And I'm just going to have to talk my way into, you know, going over and seeing where this cave's at. Because there are no pictures of this cave on the Internet anywhere. And supposedly, uh, it, it's a very popular area to go, uh, explorers like to go into, and I'm really finding it odd that nobody's ever put a picture of this cave out there. It's interesting. Before we get any further on the subject, could you maybe do a brief description of what the uh, Galrao, is that what you said, how you pronounced it? The Goro? Goro, yes. Uh, yeah, the Goro is a, um, well, stories of it, and in fact, they go back into Native American lore, that there's a large lizard-type creature that lives in a cave down in Arkansas near the town of Self, S-E-L-F, Arkansas. And the, to- uh, the name of the, uh, the cave is the, uh, the, the Devil's Hole. And um, the story goes, the owner, or the property owner of the, uh, his son had lost his dog. And the uh, son had thought that the, uh, the dog had, may have gone into the cave and, and fallen down. Because apparently when you go in the cave, it actually takes a dip and goes down into a hole. And I guess the owner didn't want anybody going in there, especially his son. So the son comes and tells the uh, dad, hey, I think, you know, I thought our, our dog fell in a hole. Well, they had also been hearing noises coming out of this cave. So anyway, the owner decides to go in there. And at first he puts a, uh, well, there's a couple variations of the story. One that he, 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 he ties a tire and sets it down and he feels something tugging on. He pulls it up and there's no, uh, and the tire's all shredded up. And there's another version where he himself, the the, uh, uh, the owner, or which he's called a farmer, goes down and he has some uh, town people help him lure him into the uh, into the hole inside the cave. And they hear uh, some hissing and growling, and then they hear the man scream and they pull him back up. And the man's hair is completely white, and he has gone insane. And to this day, they didn't figure out they couldn't figure out what it was that scared him the way or what it was down there. So nobody else went down there to this day. But they said that you know there's something down there that makes noises. Now, um, I, that this was back in the uh, the early 1800s that this happened. But there's you know numerous pl- uh, places uh, in Arkansas uh, folklore where you can read about this legend. And what was the creature described as looking like? The creature is described as looking like a, a lizard, a large lizard-type creature that basically uh, is on all fours, and it has two huge tusks coming on each side, and that, of course, that it's carnivorous, and it eats, you know, the Native Americans said they would eat, you know, it eats uh, people, and, uh, you know, it, it waits for you to just come into the cave, and then it waits for you to get to a certain point, and it jumps out and grabs you and eats you. Hmm. That sounds unfortunate. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was really interesting that I'd never heard of it, and I, I believe there's an illustration in the book of of the creature itself, and and that was what first caught my eye. I'm like, okay, well, what's this thing? So it was really interesting. I was I was glad that you included <laughs> that. Okay, what do you say we get into our last story here? This is Alan's story from Texas. This is for the hometown legends. Uh, my name's Alan. I live in Central Texas, and this is about a creature of some kind that uh, lives in a place called Autine Swamp. It's just known as the Thing in Autine Swamp. Although to the people in that area, 
you don't have to say the thing in Ateen Swamp. All you have to do is say the thing, and they know what you're talking about. The best written account of this thing is in a book called Ghost Stories of Texas by Ed Sires, uh, which is now out of print, but if you look around, you might still be able to find some used copies here and there. It's a great book, uh, and although the title is Ghost Stories of Texas, it has some other things in it besides just ghost stories, such as uh, a part about the thing in Ateen Swamp. Now, it seems that if you look on the internet for information about the thing, you'll often find it associated with Bigfoot sightings, because uh, that seems to be the easiest place to put it, but um, a lot of the people in the area, if you if you ask them, which is exactly what I did the first time I heard about it, I said, oh, is this supposed to be like a Bigfoot or something? They said, no, it's not Bigfoot, it's something else. Now, Mr. Sires interviewed some people who lived in that area. There was one man, especially, who had done a lot of uh, hunting in the swamp um, with hounds. It's uh, not uncommon even now, but back back then in the like the 60s and 70s, people would hunt raccoons with their hounds, and sometimes they would hunt coyotes also. Anyway, this hunter that he was talking to uh, said that he had heard it sometimes. It had a cry that was something between a human and an animal, and it didn't sound like any other animal or person he'd ever heard. And that occasionally he had run into it or thought he did but when they shined the light where something should have been uh, there was nothing there but just darkness so uh, it it's supposed that it might possibly be invisible or able to make itself invisible or that it's just so dark that it's impossible to see in the uh, in the swamp there's never been any reports of uh, eyes reflecting light as you would normally expect with an animal or a person for that matter. It's also supposed to be able to move extremely quickly which uh, it, it almost sounds like sometimes it may be teleporting or just uh, shooting through the swamp really fast, faster than anybody should be able to go because of the the sounds that it, it leaves behind, you know, as it's breaking brush, moving through the swamp, or the cries that it that it gives as it's running away. And um, it supposedly leaves tracks behind that look something like a, a small human handprint, except that the uh, back where you would expect the heel to be tapers to a very sharp point instead of uh, having a broad back like a human hand or foot would. Various sightings of it, people have said it could be anywhere from 4 feet tall to 8 feet tall. And um, it seems to be fairly hostile. There's reports of it uh, banging around and shaking people's trailer houses. And there's also like a... Um, like a lover's lane area where uh, occasionally it will uh, come up behind someone's car and grab the bumper and start shaking it. There's one story of uh, one time a couple of hunters were uh, hunting at night with their dogs and they got on the trail of something, took off through the swamp and they 
Uh, usually a, a raccoon will go up a tree fairly quickly to get away from the dogs. But uh, whatever these, this thing was that they were trailing, it didn't go up a tree like a raccoon would. It took off through the swamp. And um, they eventually caught up with their dogs and uh, grabbed one of them, got it in the back of the truck. And they were trying to call the other dog in. And when all of a sudden the dog that they did have in the truck kind of panicked and started uh, howling and making high-pitched cries like uh, it was in distress, it was afraid of something. And then suddenly uh, something just reared up behind their truck. They just described it as big and gray. And they jumped in their truck and got out of there. Uh, Presumably they got the other dog later on the next day or something. (laughs) I don't know for sure. And some people have reported seeing something uh, that walked on two feet. Um, But like I said before, it has varying size from short child size up to giant bigger than a normal human. Some people have said it had uh, dark shaggy hair. Others said it had gray shaggy hair. And then uh, some, like the hunters at night, have said they couldn't see anything at all because it was just too dark. There's also reports of it um, throwing rocks at people. So it seems to be fairly hostile toward the humans that it encounters. And if you put together all the different um, reports of appearances that people have uh, talked about, the tiny footprints, the varying sizes, the speed that it moves, uh, it it doesn't really add up to a Bigfoot sighting. It's it's something else, and that's why it's always just been called the thing. Now, if you wanted to go and look for this thing yourself, you could uh, you could go there. It's um, the swamp lies mostly within a state park. It's called Palmetto State Park. So uh, you could go there and camp out, and walk the trails, see some nice scenery and some unusual vegetation, and, and maybe you might even see a. A little glimpse of the thing. Just make sure you don't leave the trail because you never can tell what you're going to run into out there in the swamp. Thank you, Alan, for submitting that story. Uh, That's one I haven't heard of as well. Um, Robert, have you heard of the thing from Autine Swamp? Uh, I have, but it is, like he said, it for some reason, it is tied into Bigfoot. I mean, if you do look it up anywhere on the Internet, or it, so for some reason, you'll find it when you look for Bigfoot. I know he said he makes a comment that it, it is not a Bigfoot, but, you know, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't know what else it is. It doesn't, you know, the, the description of it does seem to, to, to go in that direction, even though I guess he said the tracks look nothing like that. But again, you know, you got the Honey Island Swamp Monster down in Louisiana that that its tracks look nothing like a Bigfoot. So, you know, maybe we're dealing with the same kind of animal that's down in Honey Island. There seems to be a handful of quote-unquote Bigfoot species or or variations down in that area with strange footprints. Um, I believe the Boggy Creek Monster or the Falk Monster had a three-toed track. Is that correct? No, that, that, that... Yeah, they, they found on a Willie Smith bean field, some right. uh, three-toed right. tracks. That's- so I, th- I think this is my personal opinion, and a lot of that is that, you know, there were sightings going on, and there's a lot of hoopla, and people are like, oh, you know, it would be fun if we put some put some footprints out so they create a cast or they create a fake footprint and, and kind of add to the, or try to add to the legend. And I, 
I can't help but think that they may do more harm than good when when they do something like that. But that's that's my uh, thought on how a lot of these three-toed tracks, or that or the confusion with like alligator tracks or something like that. Uh, well, that's true. There are you know times when they're just misidentified, and unfortunately, there are people that do go out there and you know do it. You know, there was some you know going back to the Falk monster. There was you know some talk that Willie Smith himself had made the tracks because right you know there were some sightings that had made some people come out there and he uh, he owned a gas station out there and he made a lot of money with these people coming in buying stuff so he said well maybe I'll make some three toe trick uh, tracks put them in my bean field and then I'll have these people come back out again and you know so I mean and the thing that gets me about that too because right across the uh, Sulphur River in Texas, they've had some Bigfoot signs where there's just regular, you know, the typical three-toed prints that are seen over in that area. Hmm. Well, the the track that Alan described in his call seemed to me to resemble the, I believe it's the hind foot of the alligator that has the, the pointed heel to it. If, yes. If I'm remembering correctly here. Uh, it, it seemed like Perhaps that's what he was just seeing, and and I realize it's not interesting to to have false identification of a footprint or something like that. But I I, I feel like a lot of times these stories build around something like that. Uh, you know, when it starts off as something explainable that people just don't recognize or or uh, you know elaborate on, sometimes the story gets out of control. Well, you know, yeah. What happens is sometimes people come you know you see a track you don't know what it is i mean we we've had this uh in florida with the, with some of the bear tracks where people find bear tracks oh my god there's a bigfoot out here and then they come back and you look at it a little bit closely and you know these are people that are that, you know experienced being in the woods and then all of a sudden you point out to them you know it's a bear track and they get like oh wow I'm, i don't know how i didn't see that <laughs> yeah. um and sometimes some people just don't want to you know want to admit they made a mistake I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Texas is a target-rich environment when it comes to uh, Bigfoot sightings, and there are some Bigfoot sightings in that area that he is talking about. I mean, you know, Bigfoot sightings versus the thing. I mean, when I looked that up, I mean, there's a whole web page dedicated to the thing. Yeah, yeah, I, so, I think I, mean, I saw that as well. No. So, I mean, I thought that was some really – in fact, I, I've got to do some more reading on it, you know, <laughs> because I've been honest with you, I've only – pretty much known about Bigfoot and when it comes to that part of the uh, of Texas going into Arkansas and stuff like that you know but I tell you that I, I definitely want to do some more reading on that um, I'm, I'm gonna I probably hit up my uh, friend Lyle Blackburn who's done extensive research on the Falk monster and, and Bigfoot in that area and see what he can tell me about the thing because he he's quite knowledgeable probably better probably more than anybody I know in that area yeah yeah I feel like if anybody knows anything about this it's probably Lyle Definitely. You know, one more thing to touch on on this thing um, was when I was doing research. It seemed that most of the the firsthand encounters, the sightings of the creature, quote unquote, weren't necessarily of a creature. It was a lot of there was the sound, and then there was a dark mass with no eye shine and no discernible features. It's basically a black lump, almost not unlike a shadow being. It almost seemed like. Uh, do you feel like there could be any uh, how do I word this without sounding tinfoil hatty? Uh, is it possible that maybe this is some sort of um, entity rather than a biological creature? Well, I mean, you know, you know if you're going to keep an open mind, which I, I, I do, yes. Um, doesn't necessarily, I mean, like you said, it isn't necessarily a Bigfoot. It could be something else out there. Um, 
you know, uh, there are stories where people do see masses out there and where there, there is no tracks been found, you know. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, I say an isolated incident. There are stories around where people have seen these things. And I mean, and for all I know, it, you know, it, we may be looking at extraterrestrial as well. I mean, I know that's taking a, a leap in a different direction, but, you know, there has been, um, you know, sightings of Bigfoot type creatures or large masses right after uh, UFO sightings. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, one of the ladies who started doing some serious uh, Bigfoot research down here in Florida, uh, Ramona Scott Hibner, you know, she uh, you know she passed away back in the 80s, but unfortunately she was very, you know, one of the ladies that really started the uh, research down here in Florida on uh, when she just used to call her Yeti, but she knows there was a lot, uh, a lot of correlation between UFO sightings and Bigfoot sightings. She said at first she wanted to just sweep it under the carpet and pretend, you know, but she knows it kept coming up. So, you know, you know, is it possible? Absolutely. Well, that's definitely something you hear a lot, and it seems like it comes from um, non-Bigfoot rich areas. Like I, the first thing that comes to mind is Chestnut Ridge in Pennsylvania. Um, I realize there's a lot of sightings in Ohio, Pennsylvania, that area, but you know, when you say Sasquatch or Bigfoot to me, I think Southern Florida, I think. Oregon, BC, California, Washington, those areas, not necessarily Pennsylvania and Ohio. Uh, so I don't mean to insult anyone that's researching there, but uh, the point being that it seems like a lot of these um, UFO slash Bigfoot sightings come from these states with um, that are lesser known for you know for activity. I don't. I wonder if there's a correlation there or if I'm just you know reaching, but uh, it is something that that I did notice. Well. When I initially started doing, the, you know, the Bigfoot sightings, and I was looking into some Ramona Clark's stuff, and then she brought up that in one of her articles, and I started looking, and you know, it, again, it, you know, it's all in like over in, uh, you know, Arizona. You know, there's been some, you know, UFO sightings. And then there's been a large um, bipedal thing seen right after it. So I mean, not necessarily, you know. Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, you know, you got the um, uh, West Virginia got the uh, the ghost lights, and there's been UFO sightings and there's been Bigfoot sight or large creature sightings in that area too, or the Brown Mountain lights, I should say. Brown, yeah, those are in uh, North Carolina, is that right? Oh, what did I say? Did I say Virginia? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's up in northern North Carolina. In fact, when we and my wife went up to uh, the Mothman Festival. I, you know, detoured over there, and uh, lo and behold, you know, the lights came out. We got to see them, and I thought that was kind of—I was actually kind of happy because uh, I had drugged my wife all the way to the top of this mountain in the middle of the night, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I kept thinking if I take her up here and there's nothing happened, she's going to be really upset at me, you know, because yeah. it was really cold out. And uh, we got up there, and you know, we found the the there's a lookout place up there where you can go, and sure enough, the lights came out. And we had two gentlemen show up later on, and one of them had seen the lights when he was a kid, and he was just saying, yeah, that's them right there. And uh, we started talking. He started telling me about some of the Bigfoot legends that he had heard of when he'd grown up in there. And, of course, that you know the, the UFO sightings were really uh, – it was like a hotbed of UFO sightings in that area. It's funny you bring up the, uh, the Brown Mountain Lights because my next question uh, to close this out was – you know, I'm fascinated with these natural light phenomenon, the ghost light, a lot of people call them. 
Uh, even to the point where in college I investigated the Elmore lights. Uh, that was a, a motorcycle rider that wrecked, lost his head, and has now come back as a ghost light. I never did see it, but I did on several occasions try to try to pin that down. What do you think these things are, um, and what is your favorite ghost light? I know there's several, the Paulding light in Brown Mountain, and there's the one in Arkansas that's escaping me right now. Well, you know, it's a funny story. When I was, uh, again, in high school getting into this, and, um, you know, and, and again, you know, it's the same two friends I took to look for Momo. I said, hey, I heard that there's over in this state park in, in Kansas, there's a place where these, these uh, light, you can see these lights on this uh, area where there used to be a railroad track, and supposedly it's a headless conductor out looking for his head. So we went out there. And we waited and waited and didn't see anything. And lo and behold, a light coming down the path where the railroad tracks used to be. And we're watching and watching. And we, you know, my friends yell out, at, "Hey, uh, we just let you know we got guns out here. You know, if you're trying to play a joke on us." So we hear nothing. So we start backing over to the car. And lo and behold, the light. You know, when it comes out, the the path came out to a big, huge field, and that's where our car was. Anyway, the light comes veers off the uh, the path and starts coming toward our car. And my friend again says, hey, you, I don't know what you're doing, but you better stop because we got guns. And we're, uh, you know, we're starting to get scared now because thinking, you know, oh, my God, there really is a ghost out here. And it's going to, you know, the legend is it's out looking for a new head to mm-hmm. replace the one that it was missing. And we're sitting there getting a little scared. My friend's, you know, uh, uh, Phil's trying to find his car keys to open up his car. And then out of the blue, we hear this, you guys better not have any guns. This is state property. And we just kind of look up and then realize it's uh, it wasn't a park ranger. It was just one of the uh, individuals that takes care of the area. And we, you know, he came up and said, "What are you guys doing out here? You know, you out here taking, you know, smoking drugs and stuff?" I said, "No." And I explained to him what we were doing. He goes, "Oh no, you you've got the wrong spot, guy. That's down in Missouri. You're about a hundred miles. It happened over here." I said, "Oh, okay, okay. Well, all right. We'll go ahead and leave." But I thought what was interesting is the fact that, you know, okay, we had the wrong spot, but the guy out there, the legend, and knew where it took place at. But I always thought that was just really cool. I mean, my friends, of course, they weren't amused about the whole incident. <laughs> I bet not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but anyway, um, as far as my favorite one goes, I would say it's definitely about the Brown Mountain Lights because both times I've been up there, I took my sons up there one time when I was stationed at Fort Bragg. But, uh, you know, when I took my wife out again, we saw the lights. And, I mean, it's just a neat area to go to. I mean, the whole area itself is just what I call, you know, a target-rich environment when it comes to legends. And, um, you know, what now what do I think the lights are? You know, I do I think it's a prank? I mean, to be honest with you, where these lights are, you know, for somebody to have to, you know, because there is no roads that go up to these areas where the lights are seen. Okay. And, uh, and some of the, the, the way they move around, I, I mean, I just can't see somebody doing that. I mean, you know, like, okay, Earl, get your flashlight. we got to go do some brown mountain lights, you know. I mean, in case some people come up there, we better be ready to go ahead and make them think there's lights out. I just can't see that happening. These things have also been taking place for hundreds of years, haven't they? Um, back to, That's true. I, I That's believe, true. Cherokee legend or maybe Shawnee legend. Uh, they talked about those lights hundreds of years ago. So if it's a prank, it's a well-done prank. Uh, well, the, you know, you got the uh, the Marfa, uh, excuse me, you had the Marfa lights out in Texas, and uh, they've been seen before. You know, somebody say, well, you're seeing car lights. Well, these things were seen before there was even automobiles out there, and uh, there was an airfield out there that the uh, Air Force used to train. But uh, I think it was either World War One or World War Two, 
where they actually used to comment seeing the lights. The the pilots did. Okay. So, you know, I mean, you know, I don't think science or scientists have actually put their uh, their finger on what actually is doing it. I mean, they like to come up with some quick, you know, oh, it's just car lights and all that. But again, you know, the Brown Mountain lights. There's no, you know, there's no roads that go up there to these two mountains. You know, to do this. Unless somebody is very dedicated to going out there each night, taking a flashlight and running all around, because I mean the lights aren't seen in just one particular spot; they're seen all over the mountains. Okay. And whoever's doing this would have to run around all night, you know, turning these lights on and off. So, is it a uh, natural phenomenon? It's possible. I mean, you know, the the the, the legend goes that it's a uh, a tribe of uh, Native Americans that are out looking for their. Um, their wives that were kidnapped by another uh, Native American tribe, and that's what you see is the ghost of their uh, lights that they're out there looking the mountains, looking for their uh, their uh, uh, their family members. That's actually the story I heard as well. Yeah, it started with a battle and and you know all that, but the one thing you you did point out was that science doesn't really have much of an answer, and I think it really stems from the fact that there's just not a lot of research money flooding into investigating strange lights on a remote mountaintop. Um, you know, if this mystery is going to get solved, it's going to be solved by people like you that are, you know, putting feet on the ground and, and spending time researching these things. Oh, I agree. In fact, I even told the wife, I said, next time we, we do come up here, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and see if we can go around and go onto the actual mountain, Brown Mountain, and the uh, Flat Top Mountain, which is right next to it. And both have both these two uh, mountains have the lights on them. Is to go up there and just wait and see what happens. You know, bring a tent and sleeping bag, and just wait for it to happen, and then see if we can find out how, how you know what's making these lights. Is it paranormal? Is it uh, is it something you know that can be explained like you know two rocks banging against each other causing some kind of a spark, which I find that hard to believe. But uh, I would really, you know, I would really think it'd be cool to be up there and see just what it is that these lights or be up there where the lights are at well if you do that and you see anything for sure give us a call here i'd love to have you back on to talk about it well, i'll tell you i definitely would that's great so robert tell everybody where they can find their own copy of legend tripping uh well my book legend tripping the ultimate adventure is uh published by uh, adventures unlimited press which you go onto that site, and they also pu- uh, publish a magazine called World Explorers Magazine, which I do have written some articles for. Uh, but it can be found on Amazon, and uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to come to one of these conferences, and I am, you know, you can go. I'll purchase, and I'll go ahead and, and, and sign a copy. Uh, I did have it recently in the uh, cryptid crate, which I, I thought that was awesome having in it. Of course, my hand was still sore from uh, signing all those copies. <laughs> <laughs> you did sign a lot of copies for that, didn't you? Oh, I tell you, my wife sitting there laughed at me the whole time about that one. She said, "I've never seen you sign so many books in your life." But it, you know what? It, it, it was it was great. I mean, I I enjoyed doing that. Um, but you know, you can get it on Amazon, and you can get it at uh, my publisher. I haven't seen it in any bookstores yet. I do know that if you go on Walmart and Target uh, website, they do sell it on their sites as well. And where would people find you on Twitter, Facebook, and all that uh, normal social media stuff? Well, I am on Facebook, uh, Robert Robinson Legend Tripper, as well as just my regular Facebook page. I also uh, have a blog, Legend Trippers of America, which I, I 
I get in, you know, I try to keep that update as much as possible, especially when I, um, you know, I'm doing radio shows or uh, uh, doing conferences and stuff. I got a conference coming up at the end of uh, February down in Fort Myers, a UFO paranormal conference, which I'm real excited about doing. All right, Robert. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and and, and talk shop with us. Um, we're definitely going to have to have you come back on when I'm a little more seasoned with this interview thing, but we're we're figuring it out as we go along here. Hey, thanks, Derek. I'd like to thank Robert again for taking time to come on and share his experiences with us. I highly encourage you to pick up his book, or better yet, or better yet, pick up one of the leftover December cryptic crates that features his work. It's a must-have for anyone that's interested in tracking down any of these legends. Well, the fun does not stop there. I have several more hometown legends to share with you, so let's keep it going. Our next call was submitted anonymously and spans tales from two separate continents. Hey there, Derek. I'm calling for the uh, hometown legends segment uh, for the uh, finale for the season. Um, I have a couple different ones for you. One's actually from my brother-in-law, who is uh, from Uganda, uh, around the uh, Jinja, Kampala kind of area. Um, and uh, so uh, where he's at in like, the villages especially, they have uh, this legend of night dancers, which are uh, supposedly they're, uh, they're either cannibals or witches or some sort of uh, depending on who you ask, it'll vary, but, um, essentially they go and they dance naked out in the nights and, um, uh, and if you see them, supposedly you're going to die within the next year. Um, and uh, my brother-in-law says that he had, he's seen a few of them and he's still, still kicking. So, I mean, not too, too much there on the uh, credibility, but, um, so, I mean, it, it probably is just a uh, ritualistic thing, but I just thought it was interesting. Um, again, just these people who are um, supposed to be, in some uh, some theories, cannibals, uh, who are dancing and performing rituals in the middle of the night um, in these uh, small villages. Um, the other story I have is uh, from <clears throat> around my area, um, and it's one that's fairly common in the Southwest and uh, Mexico. Uh, and it's a story of uh, La, uh, La Llorona, which is a, uh, it's uh, the crying woman. Um, and supposedly it's a woman who, uh, again, it'll depend on who you ask, it's folklore, uh, who had drowned her children uh, in a river. And she, after that, she died and she goes up and down the rivers trying to find her lost children. Um, and, um, and supposedly, uh, you know, if a kid wanders too late at night uh, around uh, ditches or uh, a river, then there's a chance that, you know, they'll hear La Llorona and she'll come and take them out, uh, take them and bring them into the water and try to use them as a replacement for her children. Uh, this one, I mean, it's probably, you know, it's pretty obvious to see that it's one of the warning stories that you tell kids to kind of keep them from going out in the middle of the night, but, uh, or going, you know, going too close to the ditches, because I know where I'm at, we have our arroyos and they, uh, and when we get rain, they can go from dry as, you know, dry as dirt to flooded uh, within seconds. And so, um, so yeah, so having something to kind of keep kids away from it. I mean, it, even if it is a, you know, a, you know, light up, made up story, um, it's something that's interesting at least. Um, so yeah, those are the 
uh, hometown legends that I've got for you. Um, and uh, I tried looking up more stuff on the night dancers, but it just came up with clubs. So, um, but yeah, so like I say, in Uganda, they have that. And then the Southwest, we have La Llorona. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, caller. I found that the La Llorona story has to be a classic in terms of hometown legends. For those that aren't familiar with the tale, the following clip was sourced from Mythology and Fiction Explained on YouTube. Cursed to roam the rivers and lakes for eternity, searching for her lost children. The tale of La Llorona is one that has been terrifying those in Latin America and Hispanic cultures for centuries. She is often depicted as a tall, thin ghost, blessed with natural beauty and long, dark hair. Roughly translated, La Llorona means the weeping woman, as she roams the rivers and creeks, weeping and wailing, searching for her children. Those who come across her are said to be dragged screaming into a watery grave. The exact origin of La Llorona is unclear, and there are many versions about how she became the weeping woman. One of the more common variations is that a young beautiful woman named Maria, full of life and love, married a wealthy man who showered her with gifts and attention. After Maria gave him two sons, things began to change. They began to drift apart and he returned to his old ways, having many affairs and turning to alcohol to dull his boredom. He would often leave Maria and his two sons alone for months at a time, and it appeared that he no longer cared for Maria. Eventually he decided that he would leave Maria for good, and he married a woman that he believed to be of his social class. He would only return to visit his children, and this caused Maria to feel great resentment towards her two sons. One evening, Maria and her two children took a stroll on the riverbank. She came across her husband with his new wife as they rode by in a carriage. After seeing the two together, Maria's anger could no longer be controlled. She lashed out at her children, grabbing them and throwing them into the river. As their bodies floated down the stream and began to disappear, only then she realized what she had just done. She attempted to run down the riverbank and save her children, but it was too late. Maria was overcome by grief and she ran through the streets wailing. According to the legend, La Llorona mourned her children day and night. She roamed the nearby rivers in her white gown, hoping that eventually her children would come back to her. She refused to eat and sleep until she grew so thin that she resembled a skeleton. Eventually she finally died on the banks of the river where she lost her children. It wasn't long after that her restless spirit began to appear and could be seen walking down the banks of the nearby rivers in the darkness. Her weeping and wailing could be heard at night and the locals, afraid of what they heard, stopped going out after dark. According to the legend, if she came across a child, she would attempt to take that child and drown them in the lake, in the hope that she would be given her children back in return. In some versions of the myth, she kills anyone who crosses her, and in others, only children. The tale of La Llorona was often told to frighten children, as a way of stopping them sneaking out of the house at night for you may be kidnapped by La Llorona. I'll tell you what, cautionary tales abound in that story. Thank you again, caller, for submitting that information. 
Our next creepy legend takes us to the opposite corner of the continent. This is Sarah's call from Massachusetts. Hi, Derek. This is Sarah the Librarian from Massachusetts. I hope I'm not too late, but I'm calling with a story for your local Legends um, season finale that I thought you might enjoy. Um, there's a local story from up here uh, from Stratford, Connecticut, about this house that used to be on a street, funny enough, called Elm Street. Um, back in the 1850s, there was a guy named Dr. Phelps who moved into this fairly large home with his second wife and her children. Um, he was um, a spiritualist. He was interested um, in seances and communicating with the dead. Um, and when they first moved in, um, they did a few minor um, seances and things like that to try to speak with spirits. Um, so the story goes, on March 10th of 1850, uh, the family came back from morning church to find that the door of the house was open, and when they went inside the house, they found it in shambles. There was stuff thrown all over the place, furniture was overturned, it looked like somebody had ransacked the place. But when they actually went through everything, they discovered that nothing had been taken, um, which was very strange because there was some very obviously uh, valuable things that had been thrown about the room, uh, expensive silverware and some jewelry and some other things. So they were very confused at what had happened. Um, the family went back to church later that afternoon, but uh, Dr. Phelps decided to stay behind and hide in the house and see if the person would return. Um, so he kind of hid in a closet, uh, according to the story, with a pistol, and waited for a very long time, and nothing happened. So he decided that you know he was wasting his time, and he walked through the house one more time to secure everything. And when he went into the dining room, he found a group of figures all around the dining room table that seemed to be in prayer. And when he looked at them closely, he realized that they were made out of the family's clothes that had been stuffed with rags and other pieces of cloth that they had found around the house. And these figures had definitely not been there the first time that they went around the house after they came back from church the first time. So he was very chilled by this. Um, over the next few months, all sorts of things started happening in the house. There were objects that were moving around. Um, smaller objects would be thrown across the room or thrown at people. There was reports of food sort of appearing out of nowhere and dropping onto the table in the middle of uh, meals or onto people's laps. They specifically note that it was potatoes and apples mostly. Um, and there were also clothing that would drop out of thin air that was later identified as pieces of clothing that had been in closets or drawers throughout the rest of the house. Um, there was an incident where they found one of these figures made out of clothes on the uh, bed of the main bedroom, made out of the wife's nightgown and socks, and set to look like a corpse being laid out for people to see at a funeral. Um, they started hearing pounding on the walls and the floors, including um, a notation by um, the New Haven Journal, which was a local paper, that they found dents in some of the walls and uh, doors when these sounds would happen. Um, and people would report being pinched in the house when red welts would come up on their skin where they had been hurt. Um, through this entire thing, uh, the family was trying to figure out what was going on. They held several sentences to try to get the spirits to leave, and they finally gave up and left the house in October of 1850 to go to Philadelphia and stay with family, and at that point, it seems that the haunting stopped. Um, however, in 1947, the house was bought by a couple that made into a nursing home, and they reported some things did happen while they owned it, including um, some of the kind of pounding and knocking on doors and voices whispering in other rooms. Um, unfortunately, the house was later abandoned, um, and there is some record of neighbors seeing and hearing things that were kind of odd, mostly lights in the house and um, voices yelling inside the house when there wasn't any supposed to be anyone there. Um, but unfortunately, the house actually burned down in the 1970s, so it's no longer there. 
Um, but this is a very famous story up here in New England, particularly in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And it's one that I've always found particularly chilling because I try to imagine what it must have looked like to walk in a room and find all of those figures made out of clothing out of nowhere. That's just particularly chilling to me. So I thought you'd enjoy that. Um, I hope you can use it for the show. Uh, thank you very much. As always, you do a great job, and I really enjoy listening to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah, for that submission. There's something very creepy about the figures made out of clothes. I'm wondering if that trope has been used in any recent horror films. I certainly can't help but think that it would be very effective. The one thing I will say regarding this story is, it seems that a majority of the accounts recorded during the spiritualist movement seem to be fabricated. There were so many frauds running around making money off people that it makes it very difficult to believe anything that comes from that era. Harry Houdini himself made it his personal mission to lift the veil, so to speak, on all these hoaxers. Thank you again, Sarah, for the submission. Our next hometown tale takes us over the pond to jolly old England. This is AJ's call from the UK. Hi, Derek. Not sure if this is much of a legend, but I have a small story for you. The town I grew up in in the UK had an apparently haunted window. I can't remember if one of my parents or my brother told me about it when I was young, but whenever I went by in a car I would always stare at this window hoping to see a face. A family many years earlier had lost their son. They lived in a home two streets from my house. The spirit boy would look out of a particular window upstairs. Cars would crash due to the intrigue caused by the rumors of other sightings. I never saw anything for myself. But one day when I was a teenager, the owner of the home had placed black card over that very window to block anyone from seeing in, or perhaps the boy from seeing out. The card was only in that one window and no others. I always found the thought of a ghost looking out from a window, just watching the living go by, to be pretty spooky. Short and sweet, but I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you, AJ. Some of you may recognize AJ from the Monsters Among Us Facebook pages. He's been fairly active over there doing research for some of his writings. Now, AJ's story reminds me of an event that scared the life out of me when I was in college. Around this time, a book series called Haunted Ohio was released. I believe there were four books in total, and each one covered dozens of local legends, haunts, creatures, and strange going-ons in the state of Ohio. Well, I devoured these books... This is back when the internet was young and information was hard to come by. Finally, after a few books were released, the author, Chris Woodward, finally covered something from the town that I was living in. The story, albeit brief, fascinated me. Now, Apparently, several people had witnessed the face of a ghost in an attic window of one of the older houses near Main Street. Well, every time I'd find myself walking in that area, I would stare at each and every attic window hoping to see this mysterious and reportedly hideous face. Until one day, while walking down an unfamiliar street, I finally saw something that sent shivers down my spine. Some jokester put a life-sized stuffed Easter bunny in the top window, and as if that wasn't enough, they lit it from below, casting a devious glare upon an otherwise friendly creature's face. To say that thing was creepy would be a huge understatement. Thank you again, AJ, for taking the time to submit. 
Our next submission comes to us from the bayous of Louisiana and is delivered via a familiar voice. Please welcome Gavin back to the program. Hey, um, this is Gavin uh, again. I'm calling. Uh, I'm, I live in Atlanta, but I'm originally from Louisiana, um, and I'm calling about uh, the hometown monsters uh, part. Um, and uh, this one, I don't know if it'll be uh, anything anybody's heard of. It's more like a boogeyman in Louisiana uh, that I grew up with. Uh, it's called the Penapachafa. It's uh, basically a half man, half demon, as far as anybody could tell. There's like, there's, a lot of times it's very, uh, it kind of depends on who's telling the story, uh, what, he, what he's like. But if you look it up online, there's maybe like one story ever. Um, that isn't that's actually written down of him and essentially he's the boogeyman and if you go uh, too close to the bayou like young kids or something like that at night you'll get snatched away and uh, never come back and he's he's basically a way for parents to uh, like the boogeyman tell kids not to go out you gotta go to bed you can't uh, you can't go out uh, messing around at night but um, that's essentially it he's I never, there's, there's not a lot of detail to him. I've tried asking my grandparents and my mom and stuff who have told me the stories uh, of what exactly he is. All I can get is half-demon, and from what both people say, he's literally a half-demon, like um, like half his body is a human, and the other half is all grotesque and like scarred up, and he walks with a big limp, and he's got a cane, um, but who knows. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you, Gavin. This story, like La Llorona, seems to be cautionary in nature. What a better way to keep kids out of the dangerous swamp and woodlands than to fabricate a terrifying, vicious creature. The only thing I don't understand is why they'd have to fabricate anything at all. There are plenty of gators, cottonmouths, wild pigs, and an array of other dangerous creatures lurking around out there. I suppose an unthinkable beast leaves the imagination to wander, and, as we all know, there's truly nothing scarier than the human mind. Thank you again, Gavin, for sending in this tale. Our next submission is a written one. This story was submitted by Danny. Hey Derek, I've been wanting to submit something for a while, but I have only one story. However, it ties in with your local legends theme for the season finale, so I figured it was time. So hopefully, this works. A couple years ago, I was driving from my family reunion in Canada to my home in Pocatello, Idaho. I had been driving all night, so I will admit that I was tired. And tired brains make you see weird things. However, this will forever stand out in my mind, and I stand by what I saw. It was shortly before sunrise, so there was plenty of light to see by, but you couldn't see too far ahead. I was driving behind what I thought was another car, and we were both in the right lane. Out of nowhere, the car in front of me gets in the left lane and slows down almost to a complete stop. As I passed it on the right side, it transformed right in front of my eyes. I was going maybe 80 miles an hour, so I only saw it for a brief second. But I swear I saw that thing go from a black car-shaped thing to a black, huge, person-shaped thing. 
I work at a newspaper, and a couple months later, for Halloween, one of our reporters wrote about a local haunting. One of the things specified in the article was a shapeshifter that had been sighted on the local Native American reservation. Which was exactly where I was when I saw whatever it was that I saw. According to the article, the creature reportedly stands about 7 feet tall. It will begin running on 2 feet like a human, then it shifts into a 4-legged, creepy creature. Granted, that doesn't sound like exactly what I saw, but the fact that I definitely saw something shapeshift, and then the fact that I saw it where other sightings have happened, makes it all sound a bit more believable. Apparently, other witnesses have all been consistent with their descriptions of the creature, which adds more credibility to the tale. Also, according to the article, some of the people were so afraid of the creature, they've even changed their driving habits due to their sighting, and refused to drive that stretch of the interstate. Now, without getting too long-winded here, I wanted to tell you about one more thing in the area. Bigfoot. He's a big deal here. According to the same article I pointed out before, while snowshoeing on the trails near Scout Mountain south of Pocatello, a husband and wife noticed it was getting dark and started to prepare their camp. However, the husband spotted what appeared to be giant Bigfoot tracks deeply embedded in the snow. The couple followed the trail of tracks for several hundred yards. Then, all of a sudden, the tracks ended without explanation. The article I mentioned before has a few other creepy things from the area, and I've included it here if you want to check it out. This area has a long history of Native Americans in the area, and there are a lot of creepy tales floating around here. Thanks for all you do. I almost hope something creepy happens to me so I have something to report on the podcast. Thank you, Danny. There's certainly something creepy about these skinwalker legends, and the fact that you personally witnessed something shifting in an area known for this activity is certainly interesting. I will post a link to the article Danny mentioned in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again. It's truly creepy stuff. Before we launch into our next story, I wanted to play a call I received back in late December. This is not a hometown legend, but once I play the call, you'll understand why I decided to play on this episode. Hey Derek, this is Joe from California, and uh, I was going to actually call and tell a different story, but I was walking out of my work right now. It's December 22nd. And it's a clear sky. It's 5.30 p.m. And I was walking out of my work in San Luis Obispo. And I was looking south. And like I said, it's a clear sky. But I saw one big bright white cloud south. And I started walking towards it. And as I got closer, I saw through an opening in the trees three lights. Uh, Two a large one and then a small one in the middle and then another large one underneath it and they were pretty far spaced apart and they were slowly falling um going downwards and it was weird they had like a uh, weird shine coming off of them like um almost like you know when the moon has a ring around it but it was like uh streams coming off of them and I turned around and I ran back to my work and I banged on the window of one of the offices so one of the people could come out other people there could come out and witness this with me and by the time they came outside there was only one of the lights visible but anyway um yeah that just happened just now probably a missile test or something 
I know the airport's right here, right next to where I am, so who knows what it is, but it was weird, and I've never seen anything like that in the sky before. But three big lights, or two big lights and one little one in the middle, and uh, man, I wish I was out there a couple of seconds earlier to see what happened right before. Anyway, uh, keep up the good work. Bye. First off, thank you, Joe, for the submission. Secondly, if you haven't figured it out yet, Joe was referring to the SpaceX launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base that took place back in late December. I was actually attending a dinner party when that launch took place. Suddenly, several people burst in through the door with pictures and video of the event. Sadly, I was only able to witness the tail end of it. However, it was fairly obvious in their pictures that what they were seeing was a launch of some sort. I only know this because of another launch that took place a few years back that looked very similar. So I decided to play this for two reasons. One, Joe took the time to share what he was seeing as it was happening, and I respect that. Two, it's just as important to focus on things that we've later identified as it is to discuss things that are unknown. At least now, when we see something like this again, we will have a decent idea of what's going on. A paranormal learning experience, if you will. Thank you again, Joe, for calling in. I thought your call was great and that you handled yourself well despite witnessing something so out of the ordinary. Alright, I have a few more stories to share, but before we do, I'm going to blow through all this real fast. Just as I've done over the past three seasons, I'll be taking a two-week break to regroup and recharge before the Season 5 premiere. So look for that to drop on February 2nd. And be sure to tune in to that episode for a huge announcement regarding extra episodes and additional content. I have a goal that I need your help to meet. Currently, I have 254 reviews on the iTunes podcast app. I want to hit 300 before we start Season 5. So if you haven't already, or if you have and don't mind leaving another, please stop by and leave a 5-star rating and a sentence or two about why you like the show. Big things are coming, and having a constant flow of reviews helps to make that a reality. For those wondering how to do this, it's simple. Open your podcast app, search for Monsters Among Us, click the show's icon, then click the Reviews tab, then there in purple letters, it'll say, Write a Review. You should be able to take it from there. Thank you to all those that have, and those that will, leave reviews. Like the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Although I'll admit, I don't really do much with the Twitter. While you're at it, join the Facebook fan page, a link to which can be found in the show notes for tonight's episode. Addie took that page over about a month ago, and she's really turned it around. The interaction there is fun and impressive, so please, take a minute and check it out. If you have a story to share, and I hope you keep them coming because we're going to need them in the next season, you can call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can email me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. And lastly, I received a few donations this past week that I'm extremely grateful for. So, from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to thank Tamara T., Heather H., Mike T., Ryan G., and Jeremy L. Without help from folks like you, I wouldn't be able to keep this train rolling. So thank you. And while I'm at it, thank you to all those that have donated in the past, written reviews, purchased merchandise, recommended the show to friends, 
called in and otherwise supported me over the past two years. Without you guys, without this community, there would be no monsters among us. And for that, I am ever so grateful. Alright, enough of all that mushy stuff. Let's hear something scary. Our next call tells of what might be a portal to the underworld itself. This is Jacob's call from Illinois. Hey Derek, uh, my name's Jacob. I am from Collinsville, Illinois. Uh, it's a southern Illinois city right outside of St. Louis, Missouri. So it's kind of a suburb of St. Louis, but across the river. Um, I've been a big fan. Big, uh, big fan of the show for for uh, several months now. I've listened to almost every episode. I really like what you do. But uh, last week's episode, you asked for um, some some stories of uh, hometown legends and things like that. So um, I had a good one. Finally, felt like I should call in, and so I thought I would. But um, in Collinsville, um, it's kind of a weird town. It's built on a hill, and everything just seems a little off there not in the sense of paranormal it's just kind of a strange town things are built differently because it's literally built on a hill um but one interesting thing uh one legend that we have around town is uh the collinsville gates of hell on the outskirts of town when you head into a different city that's a neighboring city one thing that um it has been a legend for a long time is the gates of hell which are these seven uh gates which are basically bridges or old like railroad bridges that you can drive through legend is if you drive through all seven in a very particular order then a number of things happen some some people say you know different like hellhounds come out and will attack you some people say you're instantly transported to hell. Some people say, you know, you'll see dead people that'll pop up. Uh, you know, you'll see um, something like a devil or something, a demon, something that will pop up and scare you. But um, a lot of people, you know, when I was in middle school, high school, would drive around and try to go through all of them in a very particular order. And either you know they'd be, oh i didn't get the order right and i didn't see anything or um i couldn't find this last one whatever because some of them are pretty far out like you got to drive around for a while to get through all of them and they're very small very small bridges there's a lot of graffiti on them they're pretty worn down um to be honest as as someone who is not a huge fan of uh invoking paranormal activity or anything like that i've kind of stayed away from them i've gone through a few because you know when you're driving around town or you're going to this other city where i have friends you just have to go through them it's not you know a matter of uh going around them that's the only way of doing it have not gone through all of them i've had a few friends who have gone through multiple of these gates and some of them have said that like they thought they saw something, they heard something, um, but they haven't. 
you know, really experienced anything. But one one other interesting fact is that uh, I know I know several people have posted to like ghost hunters or you know different things like that, like reality shows to come and check it out. No one has, so it might be interesting for someone at some point in time to come by Collinsville and and try to see what's going on. So uh, it's interesting. It's kind of creepy, kind of fun, but. Um, yeah, thanks for taking the time. I love your podcast. Thanks so much for putting me on it, hopefully. And uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Derek. Thank you, Jacob. It seems like there are several Gateway to Hell stories across the country. In reality, most are likely simply a spooky location with a colorful urban legend attached. But it only takes one to make a legend a reality. Perhaps somewhere out there, that one true gate awaits. Hell, maybe that gate is in Collinsville. Thanks again, Jacob. Our next story comes to us via a big supporter of the show. This is Kelly's Ghostly Legend. In the northern part of San Diego County, there is a twisted dirt road that runs through an old oak forest. The trees are almost like a tunnel in some parts, The dusty road is a washboard that is rutted and pocketed with holes and dips. So why would anyone in the right mind drive this stretch, especially at night? Why would anyone want to chance a blown tire on a road with no streetlights in the middle of nowhere? Well, to see a ghost, of course. One that's been haunting Questendino Road in Escondino, California for as long as there has been a road to haunt. Some generations call her the White Witch, Some say she's accompanied by a giant white owl, but my generation knew her as the White Lady Ghost, and she was alone and forever searching the old oaks. The White Lady started out very much alive and well. She was the mother of two and the wife of a rough-and-tumble man searching for opportunities in the newly settled Rancho Rincon del Diablo, the Devil's Corner. The story goes that the family, while traveling toward the coast, chose to camp near Escondido Creek. They tied up their horses and built a fire to cook by. All was well, and the four of them drifted off to sleep. Sometime deep in the night, the woman awoke to her husband's tight grip on her shoulder. Get up, get the girls, and run, he commanded. She didn't argue because she heard it too. Voices all around them. The natives clearly wanted them gone. She scooped up her youngest and roused the eldest. Both daughters whimpered, but the woman shushed them. She didn't stop to find proper clothes. She took her daughters and ran into the night in nothing but her white underdress. She didn't cry out when she heard her husband's shouts or when she heard her pursuers crashing into the woods behind her. She had to move as quickly and quietly as she could. And for a long time, she did just that. Soon, she was carrying both of her girls. She was slowing. Her daughters were cold and frightened. She could hear the natives far behind calling out in their strange language to one another. She ran until her nightdress was in tatters and her legs shook with the effort to keep her upright under the weight of her children. But she was no fool. She knew the natives wouldn't give up, and very soon she'd be unable to go on. The sounds of those hunting them drew nearer. With a sinking heart, she realized that the natives were closing in. Soon they'd be upon them. It was in this moment of despair that she saw the huge and gnarled oak tree with its massive trunk split 
with a cave-like hole at its base. This was her only hope. She came to a halt beneath the tree. Sinking to her knees, she let her children down. The woman took her eldest daughter's sounders in her hands and, looking into her eyes, said, I love you. I know that you are a big girl and you can take care of your little sister. She pointed to the oak and said, You will hide inside this tree and I'll be back after I've led the bad people away. You mustn't make a sound and you must be sure that your sister doesn't either. I will be back, I promise. Stay here and stay quiet until I return. The woman kissed them both goodbye, hoping against all hope that this would work. The girls huddled into the hollow tree and their mother moved away again silently. Far from her children's hiding place, the woman began to crash through the trees. She cried out in pain and fear. She did all she could to attract the attention of her haunters, and it worked. Soon, they were all around her. They had her. And all her weeping and begging did not persuade them to be merciful. The woman's last thought as she died was of her promise to return to her girls, who were cold and afraid, huddled in a hollow of a tree. Her heart broke and her soul fractured. To this day, the white lady still wanders the woods looking for that tree where her daughters wait silently for her to return. So if you happen to be strolling among the oaks and you see a woman all in white, don't be afraid. She means you no harm. She only wants to keep her promise and to find her girls before the bad men do. Thank you, Kelly. I'm not too far from this area, so I think this is something I should look into. I can't help but notice the similarities to the La Llorona stories, but, but deep down I think a lot of these legends, especially the cautionary tales, share a lot of the same elements. There is just one question. If no one survived the attack, how did the story get out? Thanks again, Kelly, for sharing your story. Next up is a little representation for the Northwest. This is an anonymous call submitted from the state of Oregon. Hey, Derek. You mentioned that you were looking for some hometown legends for the finale. And apparently the area that I live in, Independence, Oregon, is rife with them. first place that I found uh, with a legend is here in town to it's the pink house cafe and tea room um where i've actually been and uh they say that there is the apparition of a young girl who is seen and heard throughout the cafe and they said that she'll materialize during tea parties and that she's not harmful and has only been known to rearrange cutlery and hide things. The next place is Western Oregon University. Um, this is actually not too far from where we live. It's just uh, maybe like five minutes away. It's technically in Monmouth, Oregon. Um, they say that there's a ghost of a very protective headmistress there um, who haunts Todd Hall, the hall which is named for her. Um, when she was there, it was an all-girl dorm, um, and when they were, when when she retired, they named the building after her. And her ghost has been seen there, uh, keeping watch over the students, and has appeared as light. Um, so there's that. 
another place uh, that I've been, but I have not experienced any hauntings, is the Elsinore Theater right in downtown uh, Salem, about uh, about 15 minutes from where I live. Um, we say that their theater is haunted by a boy who was murdered in the men's bathroom and witnesses have seen blood reflected in the mirror and the owner's daughter who fell to her death from the upper balcony also haunts that area so that sounds like a good time there are quite a few more but the last one that I'm going to mention is Croyson Creek Road uh, Croyson Creek Road, I might be pronouncing it wrong um, they say that there is the ghost of a little girl who is said to chase a ball, rolls into the road on Friday nights, specifically Friday nights. Um, according to local legend, she was killed in this road by a speeding car, and the, they say that speeders are most likely to see the girl's ghost. They also say that the ghost of a boy will stand along the roadside and wag his finger at speeders. Um, when they pass. Uh, so I haven't experienced any of these things, um, but Poison Creek Road sounds awesome, and we're gonna go explore this uh, Friday night. Maybe I'll go slightly over the speed limit. I don't generally speed, but uh, if we experience anything, I'll let you know, and I'll have my first bonafide story for Monsters Among Us. How about that? All right, man. Uh, I hope this helps. Thanks. Thank you for the submission, caller. I can tell you. I've visited that part of the country a few times, and I'll be honest. There's just something magical about it all. The forest, the coast, the legends. And that's not even taking Bigfoot into account. Thank you again, caller, for sharing that information. Very cool. Okay. We've reached the finish line. Our final call of the evening comes to us from our neighbors to the north. This is Jade's call. Hi, Derek. It occurred to me recently that in my last two calls, I never gave uh, my name out of nerves. Um, but this time, I won't forget. Um, my name is Jay from Montreal, Canada, and I have two stories for your local legends show. Uh, the first one's actually in my hometown, um, and it's about a haunted house. Now, I have no idea if this place is actually haunted, but if you ask anyone around my age, so like 25 to 30, um, from the Pancor or Tarascal-Joy area outside of Montreal about this house, they will all swear that it's haunted, or if you vaguely describe it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 the haunted house. So, <coughs> excuse me. So this house is a tiny cottage-like house on the border of two small towns, El Perot and Tarascal-Joy. And it's located a few hundred meters from the train tracks that separate the two towns. So it's got these guardrails on either side, and it's surrounded by forest. It's not deep forest, mind you. It's just sort of like a nature sanctuary protected by McGill, um, which is one of the big universities around here. And so this house, it's got no front lawn, no parking space, and it comes up right to the edge of the road. Um, and I would pass it on my way to elementary and high school every single day. No one, not my brothers, my friends, nobody, we never saw anybody 
in and around the property, but over the years it's changed. It'll be painted, the decorations will change with the seasons. Um, but the weird thing is that when it would come to the paint jobs on the house, like first it went from white to purple and then to brown, <coughs> excuse me, um, it was all done what seems like overnight. So like poof, the next morning it would be totally done. So you never saw workmen working on the house um, or anything like that. Um, but like the next day it would be totally different. So it really freaked a lot of kids out. Um, and like this house gave everybody the creeps. So like we all swore it's haunted, but everyone, uh, like our parents and stuff would be, think we're all insane because we all swear it's haunted. Um, so I don't know if, of anyone who's ever had the nerve to go and knock on the door, find out if it's actually haunted or if anyone actually lives there, but it's definitely a creepy house. So that's my short local story. The other story I have is actually from Toronto, um, and it's called Toronto's Cave Monster. Um, now, I found this on a website um, when I was doing research for a novel I'm working on, um, about local Canadian legends, and we've got our fair share up here, um, the Lou Daru in, in Quebec, um, we've got our own variation of Spring Hill Jack in uh, Newfoundland, and this one, <coughs> excuse me, is from Toronto, and it's a cave monster, and basically it's, it happened in 1979 um, on Parliament Street, um, and it was this man called Ernest who was looking for his kitten, and apparently he went looking and he went to this uh, this kind of like tunnel or cave and all he heard was like this leave me alone kind of voice and um, paired with like a pair of green, um, red eyes, excuse me, and he just kind of like took off. So uh, there's kind of like, I couldn't find anything else on this story, so I don't know how true it is or if it's um or if it's happened to anybody else but pretty creepy so i thought i'd share that as well anyway thanks love the show bye thank you jade and please accept my apology if that's not actually your name the recording made it very difficult to make out jade briefly mentioned a hometown tale that is common in communities with french influence the lougarou well, the Lugaroo, or as it's known in the bayous of Louisiana, the Rougarou, is a werewolf-like creature that is said to stalk the swamps and forests of both regions. Not only is this creature terrifying, but it's also one of my favorite legends. If I was going to survive a Rougarou, I wouldn't go out into the swamps. That would be the first thing. The Rougarou is originally derived from the French Loup Garou when the Acadians came down here from uh, France or Nova Scotia and they brought the custom of the Loup Garou, which is the French word for werewolf. Originally it was described from the original settlers coming down here as part man, part wolf. One of the big parts of the Rougarou legend is that he will track down Christians who have broken Lent. So when children are small, the parents tell them, hey, you break Lent, the Rougarou is going to come and get you. The biggest fear of the Rougarou is that you yourself are going to turn into a Rougarou. Uh, one of the ways that you turn into a Rougarou is that you see a Rougarou. There's not many Rougarou survival tips. Don't talk about the Rougarou. If you see the Rougarou, don't tell anybody about it. One of the ways of warding it off is you're supposed to take a leaf that grows in a swamp, 
wrap it up, keep it in your wallet, that keeps the Rougarou away. There's also this really neat legend that's not very common, but a Rougarou can only count to 12. So what you do is you put 13 objects in front of your door, and the Rougarou can never get inside because he has to stop at 12 and start counting all over. Frenchman came to Louisiana. Them who lived in this swamp knew the fear the Rougarou. Some say they the work of witches or shamans. Twisted and unnatural. Half man, half something else. In the darkness, they watch you sleeping. Then they take your blood, and you gon' be one of them things too. One hundred and one nights, you gonna roam the swamp, looking for someone to pass that curse on to. But you gon' remember the evil you done to others. For the rest. Of your life. If you see them glowing red eyes, you better turn and walk the other way. He who go looking for the Rugaru always find more than he bargained for. Those clips were provided by Allison Tickemeyer and Michael Moreau. And links to both and all other videos used in this episode can be found in the show notes at monstersamonguspodcast.com. And that's going to do it for this, the fourth season of Monsters Among Us. I want to thank Addie Lloyd for her amazing work on the show's fan page. I also want to thank the talented Warren Pon Abbott for his vocal contributions to this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Music from tonight's episode was provided by Mayu, Anti-Tector, and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next season. If you thought you had to travel far to savor the Pad Thai of Bangkok, 
Or to taste the pastries of Paris? Take another look. With two times total points at grocery stores, your same kitchen can come with more cuisines. Sapphire Preferred from Chase. Make more of what's yours. Valorant up to $1,000 in purchases per month from November 1st, 2020 to April 30th, 2021. Account subject to credit approval. Cards issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To connect with us. To see that no detail is too small. To be our special guest. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes an exceptional experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open, but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.